with me, we'll be coming full circle back to Luke chapter 2 this morning. As you have already heard, our third candle of Advent is uh, called the, the joy candle. Uh, it's, it's separate from the others and it's the pink candle that we light uh, each year. Uh, some people call it the shepherd's candle uh, in reference to the announcement to the shepherds of the, of the birth of Christ. Uh, the Isaiah 35 passage that Linda was reading from uh, really has a view for the, for the restoration of the kingdom uh, in this world uh, for, for the Jews, but also ultimately looks forward to the ultimate restoration uh, of God's people uh, and, the, and the joy that they will know then, speaking to that everlasting joy. So um, that is our theme this morning. Uh, it's interesting to me uh, on this third Sunday of Advent, uh, with this subject as our meditation, uh, at first consideration, I think joy uh, doesn't seem quite so elusive uh, as peace was, as I was sharing last week. Uh, I think there are some reasons involved in that. Even in times of sorrow, we're familiar with happiness or joy. Uh, I think when we're born, uh, we're already launched into this busy world, and so peace is much more elusive, and it's not really a, a common experience of ours. But generally speaking, we all know at least some point happy times. And so we, we kind of have reference points. Yes, there are difficult times and sad times in life, but we can always look back to some happier time. And if we are of a particularly uh, optimistic uh, countenance or disposition, we may even realize that even after the sorrow or the sadness is past, uh, we'll know happiness once again. And so I think it's not quite so elusive uh, to us as peace is. And so you may be feeling this season, uh, this particularly this Christmas season, that I've known some joy and, and we are experiencing and meditating upon the joy of the Christian season. But the more danger, uh, subtle danger for us in regards to joy is not that, we, that it will elude us. Uh, it is that we will have settled uh, for some lesser joy. Uh, that's the real danger. Uh, and that's the danger that we all face. I was writing this in my notes, but the Christmas season is filled with abundant offerings of these sort of lesser joys. The joys of exchanging gifts, the child anticipating with joy that special gift and the parents anticipating the joy of seeing their surprise and the joy of a drive to Tanglewood to see the lights and the joy of those family traditions and family gatherings, the joy of snow for some and of sunshine for others. Life itself offers up its counterfeits too. All our lives we are learning to settle for a lifetime occupied with lesser joys. And in doing so, it turns out that we are actually diminishing our capacity to know and to experience true joy. We pacify ourselves with all the lesser joys to the point that we because we don't know the fullest, truest joy, we diminish our capacity to enjoy those things as they ought to be enjoyed. 
Sometimes it helps to define words again when we think about words that we take for granted that we know the meaning of, such as joy. If I said, what does joy mean? Most of us would give some sort of indication that we are aware of what joy is. And we would feel insulted if, 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 I, if you thought I didn't know or didn't think you knew what it meant. But it's really helpful for me, and was particularly in this message, uh, to, to go back and just look up a common Merriam-Webster def- definition for joy. And listen to this really carefully. Joy is defined as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Pretty, pretty good working definition of joy, I would say. But I want to point out a few things as introductory to the message and to getting to the scriptures this morning. First is that word emotion. Uh, this is important, but joy is a feeling. You hear me talk about this a lot, and some people get nervous because they're they're more rooted in the scriptures and they're more intellectual maybe and they're more rational in their thinking and they're suspicious of feelings and we ought to be. I'm not condemning that at all. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. So yes, be suspicious of, suspicious of feelings as a, as a guide or as a, as a litmus test for what is true and what is real, but don't go to the extreme to disregard them altogether. And that's what sometimes we do. Joy is a feeling. We feel joy. It's not enough to say, I'm joyful. (laughs) We want to feel joy. Tell your, uh, you receive that gift from your husband or your wife or for your children. When you, when you get that gift to them, just look at it with blank face and, and without emotion and say, I'm rejoicing over this gift. They're not going to buy it. But if you rip that cover off and you open that gift and you look at them and say, how did you know? This is exactly what I wanted. You're feeling joy and they know it. And so I don't think it's sufficient at Christmas time in contemplating the incarnation, the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to say, it makes me joyful. I think we honor God if we feel joy for that reality. I'm not interested in intellectual consent that I ought to be joyful. I want to know this joy, and I want you to know it. So it is an emotion. This is rooted in and and arises out of or is evoked out of our own conclusion or one's own conclusion as to what constitutes their good, comfort, and or pleasure. We feel happy to win the game, to get that job, to, to get that raise, that car, that home, that spouse, that mate. We feel joy or happiness when we receive what we have determined to be necessary to our own good, comfort, and pleasure. Essentially, then, the feeling of joy becomes subject to what one desires. And secondly, here are the words in this definition of well-being. 
really interesting, and this is, this is the way my weird mind works sometimes, but I've been meditating this week on what it is to be human being. Uh, the, the, the word being is what's throwing me off there. Uh, we grant that we're humans, but what does it mean to be a human being? And I thought about that in terms of well-being. It essentially means being well. So joy is the emotion evoked by one's own sense that his being, quote unquote, his existence is well. He is existing or living in the moment of his joy in a state that he concludes to be of wellness. To be a human being is to exist as a human. Not just a, not just a phrase to describe us or to differentiate us. It, it, it makes humanity an exclusive existence. We don't call animals animal beings. We don't call insects insect beings. We call them animals and insects. But of humans, we point out that they exist as humans. So well-being... Our sense of well-being evokes the emotion of joy or the feeling of joy. Keep this in mind because we're going to come back to this. Because this idea begs the question then, what does well mean to him? Does well mean to him an, an absence of ill health or poverty or disappointment or failure or stress or rejection or isolation? If this is true, then would it not also be true that where these things are present, we could, he could not know joy since he has concluded that they are in war against his well-being. So if we go by that definition, we've excluded now the possibility of knowing joy in the, in the absence of the things that we think are contending towards our well-being. Suffering, pain, sorrow, imprisonment, persecution, ill health, all these things in our minds work against our being and existing well, and therefore we're excluded, therefore, from having joy in the midst of those things. So it's important to ask the question what constitutes your well being this Christmas? Third is the word success. Joy is the emotion evoked by one's sense of success. What is aimed for or desired may be as diverse as men themselves, but one's sense of success arises from his perception of his having achieved the thing that he desires. With this condition, one may feel joy over a highly profitable portfolio of investments, while another may feel equally joyful that he has a roof over his head and food in his belly. If joy is subjective to achieving one's desires, then the addict and the Olympic medalist know the same joy, know a similar joy. Because their desires are different. Their joy is rooted in their perception of having had successfully obtained the thing desired. So we're still left with this subjectivity to joy. Fourthly is the words in that definition, good fortune. This doesn't have the idea of, of a fortune in gold. It has a very different idea. Fortune here has the idea not of riches but of fate 
or destiny. We might say outcome. This is similar to success, but introduces an element of uncertainty or fate or destiny, you might say. Events in this case unfold outside of our control in perhaps unexpected ways which tend towards fulfilling one's desire. So we feel joy when events seemingly beyond our control unfold in ways advantageous to us as far as our perceived good. We might even say, look, in this secular world we live in today, they would say karma. That's that unexpected thing. We bought the winning lottery ticket. And, and we, we win. And so this destiny and this fateful unfolding of events in ways that pr- provide for us our, per- our perceptions advantageous to us and, and we feel joy. Joy. I mean, watch some of the people on TV that find out they've won that much money and and see the explosion of joy. And the last one was really fascinating to me. So, So conditioned have we become, so subjective has our joy become that in this case, the last case, it is evoked by the mere prospect of possessing what we desire. We don't even have to have it. But the mere anticipation of it can invoke a certain joy. I was thinking about when I was a kid, uh, I always noticed this was strange to me, but although we had one vacation a year, we all the family went down to uh, Cherry Grove, we called it then, everybody calls it North Myrtle, but it, it was Cherry Grove. And we stayed about five blocks off the beach, so you had to walk hot pavement to get to the beach. But all year long, we were saving hay money and tobacco prime and money, so we'd have some money when we got to the beach. And, and there was this excitement and joy that was building all along the year. And, and when we got there, within two days, I was thinking, well, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't all... In fact, the prospect of possessing the thing I desired so greatly in that case turned out to be more joyful than getting the thing. Because when we got there, it was 96 degrees on July the 4th, humid, the pavement was burning hot, and we ran out of money the first night at the arcade. (laughs) It wasn't so joyful after that. And that's what this definition is saying. Joy is an emotion that is evoked even by the anticipating of getting the thing we desire. I think most of us would agree that's a pretty good definition of joy. But there is a problem. There is a greater joy than these. And that's what Christmas is really all about. I've thought about this. There is a capacity for joy in each of us. And I ask, where does that come from? We we must have this capacity for it. We just defined it. We all know what that feels like. We have this capacity for joy. Well, it comes first and foremost in that we were created in, in, in the image of God. If God rejoices... Should those whom he created not also have the capacity for rejoicing? Yes, God is a spirit, but he has personhood. We read throughout the scriptures of God rejoicing, even over his people. God is a rejoicing God. And so why would those created in the image of God not at least have a capacity for joy or rejoicing? 
So everybody in this room, no matter how <coughs> joyful you are today, you have the capacity for it. And it's not so elusive because you know it. You've experienced it before. Maybe it was a lesser joy, but you know what joy is. Even if you've never known peace, you at least have some reference points, generally speaking, for joy. So you know it when you see it. And you know its absence when it's not there. So capacity comes from the fact that we're created in the image of God. But this was what is striking for me. We were also created for it. Created for joy. Think about that for a moment. I'm not talking about lesser joys. I'm talking about some extraordinary experience of a joy that is directly related to the purpose for which you exist. You were created for joy. I don't think sometimes we get the reality of that. The first question of the shorter Westminster Catechism, you've heard us say it often here, but why does man exist? And the answer to that in that catechism is that the chief end, the, the highest end of man is to glorify God. And somebody tell me the last phrase. Enjoy Him forever. That's why you exist. You and I are sitting in this room today with a heartbeat and as image bearers of God for this singular glorious purpose and that is that we might be vessels through which the glory of God is displayed in the universe and that we might enjoy Him forever. I, this might be an exaggeration, but I was thinking this week in terms of that, to be satisfied with a lesser joy than that, that is not connected to faith and that reality, is almost makes joylessness a sin. To be without joy, having been created with the capacity and for the purpose of knowing joy and, and not be joyful is evidence of just how far we have fallen in humanity, that we even have any moment of joylessness is stunning if you take into account the reality of why we exist and the God who created us. Psalm 73, verse 25 to 26. Listen to the psalmist here. Notice the exclusivity that he gives to the God. Whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing else, no one else, whom have I in heaven but you? There are glorious angels, by the way, in the realms of heaven. Are they, are they for me? No, I have no one in heaven but you. My complete attention is drawn to you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And he goes on to say, and with you, I desire nothing else. <laughs> that's, just, that's just breathtaking. Whom have I in heaven but you? You are my exclusive God. You are, you are the, the one who has exclusively my desires and my aspirations and my attention. And with you, I desire nothing on earth. He goes on to say, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
Do you know that verse is one of the verse cited in reference to the, the catechism statement? That's one of the proof texts they give for saying that. What's the chief end of man? To, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is one of the proof texts they are drawing out to answer that question in that way. Psalm 43, 4 was another one. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you on the lyre, my God, my God. Joy. We have that capacity. Every human being is created with that capacity. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is the same problem we have with elusive peace, and that is we are fallen. All of us. We are utterly fallen. There are not some people, by the way, who have fallen worse than others. I mean, you may have lived one of the most moral lives and have a stellar record in all of your interactions with other human beings and in careers, in other words. And you are no less fallen than the, than the worst sinner out in this room today who came out of the worst corruptions of sin. You are no less fallen than that sinner is. And so the categorization of us as fallen includes all manifestations of that same root condition which has had an effect on this capacity for joy that we were created with. The fall did not, listen carefully, the fall did not so much extinguish the desires which were in man as a result of his having been created in the image of God, but rather it was a corruption of the mind and heart of man so as to blind him to the true joy for which he was created. So... In his darkened heart, man satisfied himself in the multitude of these lesser joys. And as time continued, he was degraded to the point to where now the gratification of every lust of the flesh is, is the source of his joy, of his happiness. We settled in our fallenness for lesser and corrupted joys simply because in our fallen nature we could see no other alternatives. Blind, dead. You want, to, you want to know, I think, why sometimes we get on the other side of Christmas and it feels as though we didn't capture the joy of Christmas? It's because you have grown up all of your life satisfying yourself with lesser joys and you did it all the way through Christmas and it sustained you for a little while, but whenever Christmas was over and all the lesser joys began to fade away, you realized that you had not, you never achieved to this greater joy that you ought to have felt, you know. Because it's inherent within your image-bearing, fallen nature. I'm somewhere deep within, there's this instinct that says, I'm created for joy. And I'm seeking to fulfill it here and there and here and there. And everything leaves me short. And you're so blinded in your fallenness that you don't know why that happens. And we keep doing it year after year after year after year that we have become content with lesser joys is attributable not so much to a diminished capacity for joy as it is to sinful man's corrupted understanding of what constitutes his remember this well-being his success 
his good fortune and what it is that we ought to desire. See, those things that Webster defined as provoking or evoking joy, our problem is not that a diminished capacity for joy. Our problem is that in our fallenness, we, we forgot or are oblivious to what constitutes our true well-being, our true success, our true good fortune, and our true desire for what, or, or the thing we ought to desire in truth. That's what's been darkened. And that's why I say you and I had no alternative in our sinfulness. From the time you were a baby, you began to demand what you wanted and only know joy when you got it. And the world and, and our parents and we ourselves have spoiled ourselves all of our days, uh, satisfying ourselves with all the lesser joys. Some of those good things and many of those simply corrupt desires of the flesh. Interestingly enough, you know, the scriptures gives us commands. This is an imperative. Rejoice. Paul in Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. <laughs> That's an imperative. He's not just saying, well, by rights, you ought to be rejoicing in the Lord. He said, you must. This is, this is what you were created for. And it is magnifying his glory when you enjoy God and, and rejoice in the Lord always. So yes, I'll say it again, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's an imperative. That's not a negotiable. That's the command that rests upon us. I was thinking this week uh, that I've got a basement full of various types of tools. And, and I've learned over the years that a hammer, a, a, a screwdriver will function as a chisel. But not well. A chisel functions at well as a chisel. But a screwdriver, if you sharpen it enough to become a chisel, it won't turn screws anymore. It'll function, just not well. <laughs> The design of that tool determines whether or not it is being well. We've lost the capacity to understand that in our fallenness. And we have a command upon us to rejoice in the Lord always. Psalm 97, 12 says this, Be joyful in the Lord, you righteous ones, and praise the mention of His holy name. You can search the Scriptures, get you a concordance and look up joy and see how often the psalmist is, is exhorting us and, and, and laying down imperatives that we ought to rejoice in the Lord. So you and I, however you feel this morning, have this mandate upon you. Rejoice in the Lord always. And when I hear stuff like that and I realize I'm not feeling joy in the Lord always, then my mind goes to what's the problem? What is the problem? And that introduces our passage in Luke. And I entitled the message today, The Gospel of Great Joy. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Beginning in verse 8. In the same regions, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone round them and they were terribly frightened. <laughs> no joy yet. Fear. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all the people. By the way, I've, I've heard people say that joy is to all the people. 
But I don't think that's what he means. I'm bringing you a gospel of joy. And that gospel of joy should be for all the people. Send it out. Let the universe know that there is the good news of great joy upon the earth in the incarnation. Because look around the world. Did the joy go out into the world? No. The world still occupies itself with all the lesser joys. And we all come up short and we get depressed and people fall into despair because they can't grab a hold of joy. If it went out into the, all the world with the incarnation of Christ, then all the world should be rejoicing. No, it is the good news of the great joy that is to go to all the people. And as a believer, having believed by faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the awareness, the truth, and the Spirit's illumination into what it is that is necessary for your true well-being and your true success and your true good fortune, your true destiny, and what it is that you ought in truth to desire more than anything. Reading on. For today, here's the, here's the gospel of the good, the good news of great joy today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he says, this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry. I won't get into this, but look at how joy gets manifested here. Urgency. They came in a hurry and found, the way, found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. I love verse 20. And the shepherds went back depressed. Doesn't say that. The implication here is they, they went back rejoicing, praising God, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. Good news of great joy. It's interesting to me, I was thinking about Christ's words and his teaching to his disciples. In John 15, 1 through 11, listen really carefully to what Jesus says here. He says to his disciples, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Everybody knows what pruning is, right? Cuts. There's, there's some violence involved in pruning from the plant's perspective. You cut off one of my limbs. That's, that's some violence from the plant's perspective. But there's a pruning involved to those who are in Christ. So every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear, bear more fruit. And then he says to them, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they gather them and throw those into the fire and they're burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatsoever you will and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I love this last part. Just as the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. And this last phrase, these things I have spoken to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I remember pondering years ago as a young Christian, what would it be like for the joy of Christ to be in me? I mean, how, how rejoicing was Christ in the Father? I mean, what, what was blocking? No sin to obscure the glory of the Father and even His own glory and the glory of the Godhead and how the heart of Christ must have rejoiced and known joy and overabundant joy. And He says of His disciples, I'm saying these things about abiding in Me and abiding in My Word and I abiding in You so that You might know My joy. Well, I can tell you right now, The joy of Christ was not preoccupied with the lesser joys in this world. In fact, it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Looked past the sufferings, as it were, of the cross and was looking and seeing the joy set before him that he would enter back into and the joy of bringing the redeemed to the Father and magnifying the glory of the Father. He had a joy set before him that was regardless or irrelevant as it were of the suffering that was needed to obtain to the fullness of that joy to complete his purpose on the earth which was your and I mine and yours redemption to the glory of the father John 16 he said something similar he said truly truly I say to you that you will weep and mourn and the world will rejoice speaking of his pending death you will grieve but Your grief will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she is in pain because her hour has come. She's in the midst of her labor. Yes, it hurts. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish of those moments because of the child, of the joy that a child has been born into the world. So it suggests to me that before joy, there is a suffering. There is a suffering, and Christ demonstrated that perfectly. In fact, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. John 17, 13, he closes that out, that chapter out again by saying at the end of his prayer for those believers and those who would believe through their words, but now, Father, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And the last one from the scriptures that I will cite is 1 Peter 1, 8. 
Peter is talking about our redemption and our salvation and, and the entirety of the experience of the Christian life. And he concludes in verse 8 with this word, these words. And though you have not seen him, you love him. That alone is just extraordinary to me. Has anybody ever seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. I don't know what he looks like. Uh, we've, been, we've been conditioned to think he looks a certain way. It just happens to be that he looks like a, a European. Uh, in our case, we've been conditioned to think he looks a certain way, but likely he probably doesn't look personally, physically like you anticipate him looking. I've never seen Jesus and neither have you. But I love him. How is that? You love him if you're a believer. I've never seen Jesus. That's what Peter's saying here. I'm going to make a leap and come back to this verse. But I think what he's saying here is the joy that you and I is available for us as believers is the joy that is united in us by faith in Christ. Paul says we walk, not, we, uh, we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, I think that was in application when he and Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail and they had been brutalized and beaten and about midnight they began singing praises to God. Do you think that was empty praise? I think in those moments by divine and by the Holy Spirit, they, they were beholding and, and walking by faith and understanding the glorious inheritance they had in Christ and the joy of the Lord filled their hearts and they erupted in praise to God. That, I think that was a real joy. And an earth-shattering joy literally shook the bars, shook the gates off of their hinges and set them free. That's no false joy. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter goes on to say, and though you do not see him now. Let me just add, though you do not see him at Christmas time, you love him. And though you do not see him right now in this moment, this morning on this third Sunday of Advent, but believe in him. Then he says this, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's why I'm saying this is a joy that you can only know in its fullness by faith. You don't see him. You won't see Christ. You don't see him this morning on this third Sunday of Advent. And you're not going to see him in the flesh throughout Christmas unless the Lord returns. But what you do know is that you have been brought to love him by his divine ministry and the sovereignty of God's grace drawing you to behold him and to love him. And what you, what you did not do on your own is you were brought by the same grace to believe in this Christ. And in those two realities, then I rejoice with exceeding great joy inexpressible in fullness of joy the reason we are so disappointed by the fleeting joys and happinesses of this life and the reason they leave us feeling so dissatisfied like my trip to the beach as a child is because we are not pursuing the joy that is in Christ known only by faith and so if you don't find that joy through faith in Christ this year, let me make a, a, a prophecy for you. The day after Christmas, you're going to feel depressed. Because all those, all those instruments of sustaining those lesser joys throughout the holidays have come to an end. 
And there's no more presents to open and no more family around. And the reality of a darkened world comes back in and sets in upon you. And you're going to realize in that moment that those lesser joys were not sufficient. You were not created to be occupied by those. But to be occupied by the joy that God brings. Here's the, here's the blessing to this. If you know that joy, it enhances your enjoyment of the lesser things. Family will be, family gathering for Christmas will be so much more treasured and valued if we know the joy of the Lord because we will understand immediately that these relationships are instruments in this glorious, loving God's hands to bring me more and more into the place to where I can behold His glory and find my joy in Him. All these things are instruments by which He is exposing or, or displaying His glory and producing in me this great joy. So it actually enhances your enjoyment and you begin to enjoy the, the multitude of lesser joys that God gives us as blessings in our lives. And to me, that's one of the saddest points of all is that somehow or another sometimes that we would be occupied all of our lives and never recognize that the unfulfilling nature of those things was itself a mercy of God pointing you to a greater joy. It's almost as if it's God's gospel proclamation that you find that you find that all the things you found joy in don't live up to the expectations. My little beach trips uh, as a kid, maybe all the way back then, God was extending some mercies to me, teaching me something about anticipating the wrong thing and, and building all my joy upon it. And it was never, Larry, isn't as a child, your joy was never resting on the beach trip. And I providentially and sovereignly made sure that it always fell short so it would keep you searching for the greater joy, which he revealed to me one day at 29 years old. And I'll be honest with you, and you know it as well as a Christian, I've not found a substitute for that yet. Nothing. Nothing in this world provides for that sort of joy. Because it's divinely given and graciously giving. That is, the, that is the joy I pray that you will contemplate as we lead into our final Advent Sunday morning. Which will be love. Which will be love. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the many mercies in my own life and perhaps in the lives of many here through the years at how satisfaction and earthly pleasures left us thirsty and discouraged and lacking. And Lord, thank you for that mercy that you used to compel us by increments towards finding the ultimate source or having that source revealed to us. Thank you for that great grace, Lord. The incarnation is central to that because apart from Christ, his life, his work, his ministry, his death on the cross sacrificially and the resurrection, these things would not be possible. And so it is absolutely relevant to the incarnation, the birth of Christ into this world. I pray that throughout this week, we will all make a note in our minds when we're enjoying some momentary 
happiness or joy or pleasure throughout this Christmas season. And just remind us in that moment by your spirit, there is a greater joy. And keep our hearts hungry to know you more fully. And by your grace, show us your glory more clearly that our joy may be more squarely resting upon you so that we might enjoy the blessings you give in this life in a way that would honor and glorify your name. As we pause in the close of this service for a moment of invitation, Father, I pray that you might open the hearts and eyes and minds and understanding of every person in this room. Lord, that you might call Christians back to their true joy who is Christ and and that you might prick the heart of those who are unbelieving and, and even at this day, even at this moment, occupying themselves with lesser joys. May you open their eyes to the greatest joy, the, the good news of the great joy of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.